0: listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this content is edifying to your walk and an encouragement to your heart. Let's join Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. let to just jump right into Daniel. Uh, as our fifth session in Daniel, we're in chapter three of the book of Daniel. And the story that if you grew up in church is probably going to be pretty familiar to you. In some ways, you'll have at least heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But I want to start with a premise that I think is foundational to this story and one that we often overlook. Man, meaning mankind, I haven't broken myself of using man for mankind. Sorry if that's not politically correct. Um, Man is basically religious. Maybe it'd be better to say man is incurably religious. Many of us who live in secular American life might be tempted to argue that point as we look around, but it becomes patently obvious obvious as you you go around the world. You see that uh, all peoples, all ethnic groups have some substance of religion woven into the fabric of who they are. Even secular humanism is religious according to the strict definition of the word. So man is an incurably religious creature, and we all inevitably bow at some shrine. We all worship something. Can't get away from it, can't escape it. It's either the worship of the one true God or it's some false substitution, but the fact is man is incurably religious. Paul would say it this way, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, uh, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, in order to suppress the truth, you have to have the truth, right, right? So they, they, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They put it down. They don't want to acknowledge it. He goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Catch verse 23 again. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Some of those images resemble mortal man. That's exactly what we're dealing with in the text today. So as humanity continues to turn its back on the one true God, people inevitably begin to worship the creature more than they worship the creator. And uh, if one turns their back on God, they don't go into a vacuum of non-religiousness. That's not a thing. But, but instead, that person creates gods out of snakes, birds, beasts, and men. Right? It's just what Scripture tells us about our condition. If we will not worship the Creator, we will worship the creation, and we're just because we're hardwired to worship. Now, whenever man does this, we make gods as we want them to be, and it's kind of this twisting of the creation account, whereby God made man in His image. Uh, and then we rebel against God's constraints and his rules. And then we attempt to remake God in our image. And we go off of our imaginations and our preferences. And all of that's informed by the sin in our hearts. And, and imagining what we would like for God to be like as he serves us. And so it becomes this vicious cycle, right? Of making gods in our image and becoming like the things that we worship. And only Jesus Christ can break that cycle. But it's important to note that... One can neither command nor demand worship. It's impossible. You can't command worship because it's an attitude of praise and adoration, and that adoration shapes the heart and the life of the person. That process that happens when we worship is rooted in the heart's affections, and it encompasses the will of the person. So when, it, when worship is demanded or forced, It's never genuine. It's not true worship. It will always, in this circumstance, simply be going through the motions without the heart's true devotion. It's just going through the motions when it's forced. So here in Daniel 3, in the text, we're going to see this played out very clearly. And again this week, because there's so much text, I'm going to jump right into the exposition of the text as we go along. So look at verse 1 with me. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is the insidious nature of pride on display and what it does to a person. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts Absolutely. I actually think that's wrong. I think power doesn't corrupt. Power reveals. It reveals what's in the heart. See, most of us don't have the power or the resources to act on our deepest and basest impulses. We just don't. But uh, because we don't have the power, we don't have the resources, those, those impulses in us go unknown to the people around us. And sometimes they go unknown to ourselves. Like we don't even know how, how corrupt we are in our, in our thinking and our impulses because we don't have the power to act on them. But, but when you have the kind of power and resources that Nebuchadnezzar had, you, you have almost infinite resources, and, and it lays bare your ambition and your pride for the world to see. So remember that at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar He's received the interpretation and the dream from God through Daniel, and he's falling on his knees, and he's worshiping the one true and living God. And then then when we get to chapter 3, like everything's changed. So a lot has happened since then, and some commentators indicate it's been even as much as 10 years since the events of chapter 2, so keep that in mind. As a result of that dream, though, and that interpretation in chapter 2, the king now has had a statue made in the image of the dream but instead of being all those different metals like it was in the dream, the statue's all of gold. And and when you remember what God said to Nebuchadnezzar about being the head of gold, you begin to understand his obsession and what he's done here. He's he's, he's saying, I'll make a monument to me. I'm going to make a monument to mankind, and I am the ruler over mankind. He's essentially uh, putting right what he considered to be wrong or insufficient about the dream. Not multiple metals changing empires, but one current empire forever until the end of time. Uh, and, and so um, that is to say, he, he feels like his reign and authority is going to never end. And it's a contradiction to God's express plan that he's laid out already. So he's, he's correcting God, as it were, in a real sense, trying to correct God's word. And can I just tell you, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't feel like you've got to correct God. It doesn't. It never. It never goes well for us, okay? Because he's never wrong. This image is um, think. Think like a big uh, obelisk that narrows at the top, and then the statue on top. So this wasn't a, a 60 cubit or a a, a 90, 90 foot statue made of solid gold. That that probably wouldn't work. Um, this was this was large. It was not probably made of some other material overlaid with gold, which was a common method of construction. In the ancient world. But look at verse 2 with me. We'll go on down to verse 7. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, "'You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, "'when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, "'harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, "'you are to fall down and worship the golden image "'that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. "'And whoever does not fall down and worship "'shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace.'" Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every other kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, you've got this orchestra playing, the horns and the flutes, the harps, the lyre, the psaltery, all these musical instruments, uh, really difficult to define, because obviously they were very different from what we know as musical instruments today. Um, it was an impressive orchestra. And I, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this this week. I actually did my senior thesis, um, my, my undergraduate, on musical instruments in the Bible because I was a music major. I was trying to tie it into my faith. And I, I actually studied this passage in depth in 1997. I don't remember any of that. Um, I, I, I even tried to go back and find the papers. Like, no, go on. But the setup here is... The command of the king for all officials to report and bow down, right? We we'll get that? All officials, all magistrates, governors, if you are a governmental official, if you work for the government, you are required to show up and bow down. And they came from all the provinces of the kingdom. So take note of that. That's super important. We'll get to this later, okay? But, but file that away. Satrap is a new word here in, in Daniel. It's a Persian lo- in the loan commerce world. That means a protector of the realm, somebody that oversees commerce in a particular region, a subcategory of public officials. But all the officials of the provinces had to come to this dedication. And the demand that all come to the dedication ceremony means Nebuchadnezzar meant to use the worship of this image as a test of their allegiance. Bow down. You're not just bowing down to a statue. You're, You're bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar and his reign. And the command's backed up by a powerful threat, right? Nebuchadnezzar regarded the refusal to worship the image as treason, not only a religious offense. And in this, he's like many career politicians who seem to be willing to use religion to strengthen their grip on political power. I find that um, many, not all, I always have to say this because I I know that there are always one or two local public servants in the room and I never want to just blanket that whole group. But many politicians... Are happy to blend spiritual allegiance and political allegiance, and I think that's a bad, a bad trend. Um, we see that example in 1936 when Herr Baldur von Schirach, head of the youth program in Nazi Germany, said, "If we act as true Germans, then we're acting according to the laws of God. And whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Führer, serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Right? That's." That's the blending of national dedication with spiritual worship. We know that that statement that he made is patently false. There's an example in 1960. I found this one really funny. The president of Ghana at the time had a slightly larger than life statue built of himself and uh, put out in front of the National House of Parliament. And the inscription on the side of the statue read, Seek ye first the political kingdom and all other things shall be added unto you. And the statue was destroyed in, in 1966, and he was removed from office. So um, it's like, stop. <laughs> it's, you're not going to win. You start blaspheming God. He doesn't take kindly to this stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar's grand idolatry you know, is accompanied by music. It's, it's elaborate. It's well-produced. It makes me uh, very conscious of the inherent power of music for good and for evil, And this literally, the text literally reads that as soon as they heard the sound, they were just falling down. There's this total, immediate, complete obedience demanded from Nebuchadnezzar and his command. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the, the music, in the, I'm just going to skip the, the orchestra, every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So if you don't know this about Nebuchadnezzar, he was not the kind of man who allowed lawbreakers to go unpunished. I've actually found ancient cuneiform tablets, sections of tablets that detail um, his his devotion to justice. One of them reads that concerning justice in the kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar did not rest night or day. He's he's a very driven man. He's concerned about justice, or at least his, his version of it at that time. But these Chaldeans had an obvious political motivation against the Jews. who are prom- They've been promoted to high office along with Daniel, right? And it's interesting uh, that their failure to worship the image was not discovered until these certain Chaldeans made it known to the king. You think with so many thousands of governing officials coming from all over this vast kingdom and these different provinces, um, it, w- it would have been easy to overlook just three men uh, not bowing down. But we, s- we also see from this that these three Jewish men they didn't form a lot of a formal, they didn't lodge a formal protest about this, right? They didn't they didn't call somebody and say, hey, we don't like this, we don't want to do this, can you talk to the king? They just, they just refrained from participating. But see, the problem is when you've got a crowd whipped into a frenzy, what that wants is validation. They're they're doing a thing. Or they're being, this is especially true, they're being made to do something and then you're not going to do that, and then they're really torqued. It's like, you're not going to do this? Well, we're being made to do this. And now the crowd's in a frenzy and they want validation. They want you to participate. And the lack of participation is taken as hostility. Silence is violence. Isn't that what we're hearing right now? You start to see the parallel? Pagans do what pagans do. But the covenant people of God should refuse to take part in the things that the pagans do when they're worshiping their gods. That should be a lesson for us. Look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought. So they brought them in before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the, of the music every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's something worth noting. Nebuchadnezzar had already decreed that anybody who didn't bow down to the image would be immediately thrown into the fiery furnace, right? Here he is giving these three another chance. That's something. That's something. To his credit, he didn't just accept the accusation on hearsay. He wanted to make sure in a personal interview, which I think is an even greater test for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Because now they've got to go before the king and explain themselves and stand their ground in front of the king. And and there is some respect for them here, though little enough to keep him from killing them for refusing to worship his image, obviously. But he gives them a second chance, a second chance to come. Compromise their faith in God. Think about that. Satan will give you a second chance to compromise your faith in God. Satan will give you a third chance. He'll give you as many chances as he can possibly give you to compromise your faith in God. Now, you, can, you know, you can still worship God and do that thing over here too. Don't, don't lose your life. Just, just compromise a little bit. Can you imagine the enormous pressure that these three men are under in this moment? That's enormous. Everything in front of them, the king, the furnace, the, the music, their compatriots, their competitors, all of it is, is attempting to, attempting to com- get them to compromise. Just, just give up a little bit of your morality. Just give up a little bit of your faith. Just compromise a little bit. But see, God was more real to them than any of those things. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, don't judge the situation by the king's threat. And don't judge the situation by the heat of the burning fiery furnace. Judge the situation by the everlasting God and the eternal life that awaits you. Don't let the music fascinate you. Hearken to the music of the glorified. He says, men are going to frown at you, but you can see God smiling on you, and that is why you are not moved. That's how you are not moved. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, and this rhetorical question, (laughs) it points to his imagined supremacy over all the gods. He says, and who is the God who's able to deliver you out of my hands? What he's really saying is I'm greater than all the gods, right? He thought nothing of insulting all the gods with this statement that now that he's the image of gold, right? And so he's, it's funny because he's really more of a secular humanist than a, than a theist. Because the God that he worships is himself. It's not some God out there. He worships himself, not the gods of Babylon. And then 16 down to 18. Look at, look at the verses there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, that is a strong answer. Just the right balance of respect and flat refusal to comply. It's just perfect, perfect. They had no need to defend themselves they didn't need to defend themselves their guilt in the matter is obvious to everybody they did not bow down they were clearly not going to bow down to this image and they knew god was able to save them both from the fiery furnace and from the hand of nebuchadnezzar himself they knew and understood god's power but they also knew that they had to do what was right even if god didn't do what they desired for him to do. Does that make sense? See, we get caught up on one or the other. See, well, I know that God's able to, and so then I conflate that with he must. Well, no, he's not under any obligation. How many Christians over the last 2,000 plus years have died for their faith? You think you're special? Think that wouldn't happen to you? Like God's got you on the, on the those are all JV players and you're on the varsity squad? No. No, they didn't doubt God's ability, but neither did they presume to know God's will in the matter. And in that, they agree with Job. Job says in in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Right? God's going to do what God's going to do, and I can't control that, but he's still good, and I trust him. And they recognize that God's plan might be different than what they desired for him to do. And I just want to stop and say, church, that what we need, what the church needs in this hour is not more self-help books. We don't need more Oprah. We don't need more niceness. What we need are men and women of God who will stand up and refuse to compromise with the culture. What we need is a strong church that won't tolerate the false gospels that are infiltrating it at this very hour and leading people astray in the name of social justice. We need a church whose eyes are fixed on Christ alone and his authoritative word, and no other. Remember, the early Christians in the Roman Empire, they were being thrown to the lions, not because they worshiped Jesus, but because they would not worship the emperor. They would not. And Instead, in our day, many think highly of Jesus. He's a good moral teacher, and they put him up on the shelf with all their other household gods. But John says in 1 John 2, verse 15, Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in them. That verse is embodied in these three men and their stand against idolatry. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make no hint of an excuse, they're not looking to make an excuse. In a time of testing like this, can you just, can you imagine? Can you, can you put yourself there for just a moment and think how easy it would be to think of a thousand excuses to justify compromise for the sake of keeping your life? Can you just, I mean, I can go there so quick, right? They, they could have said, you know, there's really nothing to be gained by resisting. Couldn't we just do more? Can we do more good over the course of our lives if we continue to live instead of dying right now? Couldn't we accomplish more? They might have said, you know, we're, we're in a different place than Israel. Um, and so when in Rome, do as the Romans do. I mean, they, they couldn't have said that because Rome hadn't even, like, happened yet. But, but you get the idea, right? When, let's just adopt the cult. We'll just be like them. It's okay. We still love God. They, they could have said, you know what? We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our standard of living. After all, we're, we're not being called on to renounce God. We're not, we're, we're not really bowing down to worship the idol. We're just going to bow down out of respect for the king. Right? See, they could have said, everybody else is doing it and given in to the overwhelming cultural pressures around them. I I really hope you're picking up on the parallels that are happening in our culture right now because excuses like this are all too common all around us and and anything will serve as an excuse when the heart is already bent on compromise. We've already said in our hearts, I'm looking for a way out of this dilemma I want to find a way to preserve me and and, am focused on me instead of focused on obeying God, then that heart's already bent on compromise. It's going to find a way to do it. But this was not their response. They looked the king right in the face and calmly, with all due respect, they said, we don't need to give you an answer on this. We bear no obligation to explain ourselves to you. Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. He is able, but he is not obligated. But even if he does not do that, we're ready to die for our faith in God. We're ready to die for what we believe in. See, I think texts like this one create a conundrum for 21st century Americans. Because we have lived... Past tense, mark that, because we have lived in a nation founded on Judeo-Christian ethics with the assumption of God as creator, we've enjoyed something that no other nation on earth has enjoyed to the degree that we have, freedom and prosperity. There's no other empire or nation that has ever experienced what we have experienced to the level that we have. And we've largely seen our government as protecting our liberties, protecting our rights. And that's what the system is designed to do. But it is shifting really rapidly right now. And in all of this discussion and navigating issues related to our faith in these days, I want you to know I am continually being confronted by, I think, well-intending Christians and some maybe not well-intending. I don't know their hearts. But I'm confronted with Romans 13 all the time. Well, what about Romans 13? And I think... Um, well-intentioned Christians seeking to correct my understanding of God's word so as to align with the idea that we are supposed to do whatever the government tells us to do as Christians. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Maybe you've had that happen to you too. Maybe you're not wearing a mask. and you have somebody, The you, government says you're supposed to do this. The government says the church isn't supposed to do that. let's, Let's stop for just a minute and let's look at Romans 13. What does it say about governing authorities and obeying our governing authorities? Because this is a question directly related to the text of Daniel 3. They've been told by their supreme governing authority on earth to do something contrary to what God's word says. Now we have a problem. What does Romans 13 say? Is Paul, by the Spirit, issuing a blanket commandment to always obey governing authorities. Let's examine that assertion because that is the main thrust of what I'm hearing today from frightened Christians, church leaders, and even, <laughs> this one cracks me up, governing officials who are not even Christians. They're happy to say, Romans 13? I'm like, dude, you don't even know your Bible. You, you couldn't find Romans. If I gave you 30 minutes. You couldn't find it. Listen to what the text of Romans 13 says. Verses 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, it's not looking good for us so far. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Ah, it's looking really bleak now. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Oh, oh, wait. Wait. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 3 is the clarification. So God has established government and the authority that it wields. Resisting that authority resists what God has appointed. But here's where people get tripped up. Verse three is the clarifying point that help us understand what that means, right? Those rulers and authorities that God has established are not, should not be a terror to good conduct and righteousness. That is beyond their purview. They are appointed to be a terror to sin and to bad conduct and evil. And that is why the government bears the sword, or in our day, the gun. They are to carry out God's wrath on those who do wrong. They're to punish evil. So let's make this personal. Let's make this personal. See, we have a Seattle City Council and a mayor who have handed over the East Precinct, and I think last count was nine city blocks, to Antifa and anarchists. We have a governor who looks the other way when petulant children throw tantrums on the freeway and shut down commerce and a lifeline through Seattle. We, we have a governor that presumes to tell the church what we can and cannot do when we gather to worship in violation of our First Amendment rights as enshrined in the Constitution, but, but who looks the other way when rioters gather in the hundreds and hundreds and, and, and burn and loot and steal and destroy private property and the livelihoods of business people. Do we have an obligation to obey those authorities? No. No, we do not. Does that mean that we can become lawless? No, it does not. It does not. It means that we resist unjust laws and edicts, and we do so on the basis of God's word. Our Chinese brothers and sisters, think about this. If Romans 13 is a blanket commandment to always obey earthly governments and consider the implications, our Chinese brothers and sisters are sinning in violation of Romans 13 as they continue to meet in secret without registering with the government, their communist government, and and continuing to proselytize uh, those who don't know Jesus in China. They are violating the text. The first century early church was in violation of God's word as they continued to preach and proclaim Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire that forbade that. They were demanding worship of the emperor. Not only were they doing something they weren't supposed to do, they weren't doing something they were supposed to do. Violation of Romans 13. If that's the way you read the text, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sinning by failing to kneel to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and worship the image as they're commanded to by their governing officials see how insidious Satan can come in and twist the word of God, make it mean something that it doesn't mean? You see, when governing officials actively police and quelch and put down evil, we applaud them. We express our gratitude to them. But what's happening in our day is a calculated and deliberate attempt to reverse what God has ordained. When magistrates attempt to stop the worship of the one true God, we can resist and we must resist and refuse to comply, and we do so standing squarely on God's word. You see, folks, I am a loyal citizen of these United States unless or until my government commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God commands. At that point, my loyalty is not here. I have no loyalty. I'm not even sure that the United States exists as it once did anymore. It's lawlessness. Can you just hear the message, though? Can you hear it today? It's the same message that was coming over the loudspeaker in Daniel 3 All underlings report immediately to the dedication (laughs) and see all the little minions. How long do you think it will be before the command is given here? How long? What will you do if that happens? See, it's it's easy to read this text knowing the outcome and to be glib about resisting tyrants and standing against idolatry and injustice because we know how the story plays out. We know what happens. But these three men had no idea. They had no idea how this would play out. They were prepared to die for their faith. Are you? Are you prepared? I think about this a lot. You see, everybody worships. It seems like a leap, but it's really just baby steps to go from making much of yourself to demanding worship from others. And isn't that what we're seeing all around us at this moment in our nation? Down in Seattle at the chop, whatever they're calling it this week. Isn't this Romans 1, 18 to 32, playing out right before our eyes in real time? Isn't this the word of God? In a moral vacuum, usually the state steps in, right? And freedoms are no longer preserved because lawlessness reigns. And we move from the governing authorities being in the position of stewarding and protecting the citizens and their God-given rights to the place where the government is compelling speech and compelling actions and compelling thoughts. That's Orwellian. But that's exactly what's happening. And it's about to happen more fully. And listen, it's got to be resisted. It's, you're going to be tempted to compromise. What will you do? It has to be resisted at all costs. I would encourage you to look, at, look to China. Consider our brothers and sisters in the secret house church movement. I would encourage you to study that model of church really well, for I say to you that unless Jesus comes soon, we will not meet in this building. We will meet house to house. And not because we've shifted paradise, but because out of necessity that will be what's happened. And I'm not talking about pulling up in my driveway in the daylight with joy-filled shouts of greeting. I'm talking huddled in the dark. I'm talking about trying not to be seen by the neighbors or reported for gathering. We're headed there. We're headed there really quickly. I'm not overstating this. Why would we presume that that couldn't happen here? Every single day we're experiencing something new that we previously thought could never happen here, aren't we? Like every day. Somebody's like, whoa, I didn't think that ever happened in the United States. Like every day for like six months. Why would you think that this can never happen here? That the church would be openly persecuted here, that we would have to meet in secret under the cover of darkness to avoid being arrested and tortured. Of course it will happen. Or Jesus will come back first. I know which one I prefer. I know which one I'm praying for. You can't command, you can't demand worship. It's an attitude of praise. It's adoration It shapes your whole life and your actions rooted in the heart's affections and it encompasses the will of the person when it's demand. When worship is forced, it's never genuine. It's not the real thing. And in this circumstance, it's just going through the motions without the heart's true devotion. You see, this is ultimately about the deification of man. This, this has its culmination, this, this thing in Daniel um, and then in Romans 1, has, has its culmination in Revelation 13, 1 through, th- 1 through 4. John, John records, he, he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, but its feet were more like a bear's, and its mouth was more like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon gave his power, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne in great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. That's Satan, by the way. They worshiped the dragon who had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? You see, this coming world leader is described from God's perspective as a beast, as a beast. Might the ten horns here in Revelation 13 correspond to the ten toes of that final kingdom described in Daniel 2? I I think there's a correlation, maybe. But in this final kingdom, it's going to be crushed by Jesus himself. We looked at that text. Prophecy is unfolding all around us at this very hour. And so I got one last question for you as we wrap up this morning. Where's Daniel? Where is Daniel? Daniel? you ever read chapter 3 and go, wait a minute, where's Daniel? You go back and read the text again, but read it with prophetic lenses. Here's some things that emerge. Listen to this. We know that Babylon was the place where all false religion began in history, right? All false religions have their origin at Babel in Genesis 11 and the tower that, was, that they were attempting to build. It's detailed. If you want some cross references to look up this week, Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 14, Jeremiah 50, and Jeremiah 51. So you've got that. And then you've got the dimensions of the image. You've got 60 and 6. You've got some 6's happening here. And then you've got a despot enforcing the worship of his image under pain of death. That sounds like some things in Revelation. And as we'll see, we've got three Jewish young men going through the trial of fire and tribulation. Some interesting parallels, I think, to Revelation. But where is Daniel? Where is Daniel? He seems to be edited out of the text. Now, remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who superintends the writing of Scripture, right? We have precedent for him editing people out of the text so as to fulfill a type. Let me give you an example. When you read Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac going up on Mount Moriah, and they're going to sacrifice there, right? And um, in that story, Abraham is the father and Isaac is the promised one. He's the promised son, right? And and he's going to sacrifice the one and only son. Now, God stops him because there's no need for him to do that because it doesn't buy him anything. It doesn't gain him anything. It's just a picture of what God is going to do, right? Right? And when it's all over, they get ready to go down the hill, go home. The text says Abraham and his two men went home, and it doesn't mention Isaac at all. Though presumably he went home too. He didn't just stay on the mountain for weeks and weeks and weeks just to live there, see if he tough it out in nature. Uh, But we don't see any mention of Isaac until the end of chapter 24. And at the end of chapter 24, Isaac receives Rebekah. So the promised one, the promised son, receives his Gentile Bride, but here's the cool part. Abraham, who's the father, had to send his servant, the helper, Eleazar of Damascus. We learned his name in another place. Eleazar means helper. So the father sent the helper to get the Gentile bride to bring her back to the promised son. Right? So the editing of the text reflects that fullness of that type that's being played out. It's like a, it's like a one-act play. It's foreshadowing what's about to happen in the new covenant. So where's Daniel? Where's Daniel. Could he have bowed down and thus he's not mentioned? No way. No way. Could it be that he wasn't accused with the others? Well, that's unlikely. Was he absent on some errand for the king? It was possible. But may I suggest to you this morning that Daniel is a type or a foreshadowing of the church. And then this episode is a foreshadowing of a coming tribulation at the hands of an Antichrist. And as such, Daniel's deliberately edited out of the t- text the narrative to fulfill the type my conjecture you don't have to you don't have to share that view i just offer that to you for your consideration and then i say may it be so <laughs> may it be so in the meantime there are consequences for living for god in a godless culture are you ready for whatever comes i say to you people of god make ready your hearts make ready your hearts let's pray Father, we come to you this morning and we use your word as the springboard for our prayers in Hebrews 10. Your word tells us that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And we, we just stop and we just say that's that's incredible. Just that, that one phrase that we have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. By this new and living way that you've opened for us through the curtain, through the veil in the temple that was closed to us. We could not go into the holy of holies, but now you've opened it through your flesh. Now we have a great high priest over the house of God. And we draw near with full assurance of faith. With our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with the pure water of the word. Father, this morning we ask that you would help us to hold fast to the confession of our hope and that we would not waver in these days. We should consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And your word says, do not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we do that, Lord. Encourage our hearts as we encourage one another And walk in faithfulness as we see the day drawing near. In Jesus' name, amen.